and welcome to the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. We've got two guests today, and our first on today's show is Len Casper, radio voice for the Chicago White Sox. Yes, radio. Yes, White Sox. Len, formerly the longtime Cubs TV voice, made the changeover this year. Len joined us Wednesday morning. Wednesday night, Len called Carlos Rodon's no-hitter, and he was nice enough to recap it for us after the fact. <laughs> it felt great. Uh you know, in the seventh inning, and, you know, you get these feelings every once in a while uh, when someone has a no-hitter or a perfect game into the late innings uh, that this could be the night, but it, it really did feel that way. Uh, Rodon's pitch count was in great shape, and he just was in total command, and really the only guy who had good swings off him uh, was Roberto Perez, who made two hard outs, and then, of course, got hit by the pitch in the ninth to break up the perfect game. But it was nerve-wracking. Uh, it was exhilarating. Uh, I love being uncomfortable in that moment. Uh, that, that's when life is at its best. And uh, as a baseball fan, there's nothing better than witnessing history and to be able to, to call uh, a no-hitter. Uh, for a guy who really deserved it, uh, Rodon has had... Uh, quite an interesting career, first-round draft pick, shoulder problems, Tommy John surgery, non-tendered, uh, had to make the club in spring training to be the fifth starter. So it was just a really neat story all around. Frigid night, but the fans stayed uh, in their seats until the final out. And uh, yeah, that's one I'll never forget. And how has radio been treating you? Uh, it's been really fun. Uh, it's a definitely a new challenge for me. I grew up in mid-Michigan listening to the great Ernie Harwell and his longtime partner Paul Carey on Tigers Radio. And I thought when I was around 12 or 13, this would be a really cool job because while I like playing baseball, I'm probably not going to play beyond high school. And I was correct in that assessment. And so it, it really was a lifelong goal of mine to do Major League Baseball on the radio. I got into the business in order to do that, I worked in radio, but my baseball opportunity ended up being on television. And as you know, when you have those opportunities, you jump at them. I've had a good 20 years of TV experience, and it's been a lot of fun, and I'll continue to, to dabble in television. But radio is my first passion, and uh, I'm having a blast. And the good news is that when the White Sox make the postseason, you get to continue doing the games. Yeah, that was definitely a part of this. I had an amazing run with the Cubs and was actually able to be with the radio guys in, in the postseason. I did one inning, I did the fifth inning and had some fun moments, but to, to be the lead voice uh, of a team in the playoffs is something that I've never experienced. And it's, it's definitely something I want to do. And hopefully I'll be able to do it here in 2021 because uh, the, the expectations for the White Sox are really high, as they should be. And uh, you know, hopefully I'll be announcing games deep into October. Len was among those at the front of the line about eight, nine years ago in terms of introducing sabermetrics into baseball broadcasts. The Cubs did a regular feature, Stat Sunday, that included just about every prominent advanced stats person at the time. So with that in mind, what intrigues you sabermetrically these days? Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. I think from a purely broadcasting perspective, and especially now that I'm on radio most of the time, 
you know, making sure that you simplify and kind of distill the stats and and make it as understandable and as seamless and as part of the narrative as possible, right? I think the the conversations I have with the John Shambies of the world is, you know, we and Jason Benetti's, you know, we don't want to make it a math class. We don't want to bombard people with things that they don't understand. Uh, there still is always going to be kind of the, the 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 batting average, home run, RBI, ERA thing that people quickly can get and contextualize, right? So I think any numbers we bring in that are a little outside the box, you have to give them context. So, you know, if if I can make it simple, Mark, um, you know what interests me and I think has been a long time coming is just ratios. Right. I think baseball reference has now added, you know, a, a real easy baseball ratio page, uh, which has, you know, strikeout percentage, walk percentage, fly ball percentage, ground ball percentage. And I think even people who don't understand when they hear walk rate, right? I think they go back to maybe walks per nine, which was the thing we used forever. And it it might not even really be analytics, but I think it's just a simplification of okay, this guy walks 12% of the batters he faces, and that's high. Or this guy uh, walks 3% of the batters he faces, and that's really good. That's really low. Um, so I, th- I think those kinds of things, just simplifying what what could be in, in some eras kind of tricky to understand numbers, it just makes it real simple. And you sit there and you go, okay, you know, the major league strikeout average, whatever it is, 23%, and the walk out, walk rate is 8%. So anything above or below those things kind of give you context. And I, I, I really like doing that as much as I possibly can. Speaking of walk rate, I was trying to find what I thought were the most interesting analytic stats about the White Sox this year. And that actually was the one that came up. What have you found most interesting about the White Sox from an analytic perspective so far? I, I never anticipated even two weeks into the season, Mark, that they would lead the league in walks. My biggest wonder and concern about this offense wasn't that it would score runs and hit home runs, but that it wouldn't walk enough and simply get on base often enough. And ironically, that's what they're doing. They're, they're getting on base a ton. Uh, you know, the runners in scoring position number isn't good, but I was talking to somebody yesterday. Every club I've ever been with, Every broadcaster and every executive I talk to on other teams, invariably at some point in the season, they say, we just can't get a runner home from third with less than two outs. It's like this, and I hate to use the word virus because that uh, has obviously very real connotations, but you know, it, it, it's like this illness in the game that pervades every club. If you don't you know, hit 400 with runners in scoring position, like I think the Cardinals did that one crazy yep. year. Everybody thinks you're you're bad at it, and and I still believe that you know there is a skill, I guess, to shortening up and having a, an approach. But by and large, as you know, um, you know the batting averages year to year can be kind of random with with runners in scoring position. And I just truly believe that uh, the more kicks at the can you have, and and the more base runners you have, eventually you're going to score a lot of runs, and and that's been encouraging to see for the White Sox. Yeah, it's funny that the thing that you just said about runners in scoring position, I feel that that applies in the reverse to everyone thinks that their center fielder is awesome defensively. Uh, <laughs> I guess in the White Sox case, that's kind of true, though, no? 
Yeah, Luis Robert is special. And what I was impressed by even last year, uh, watching him from the other side, so to speak, wasn't the athleticism, which is off the charts and, and is very special. It's the jumps. It's it's the instincts. And he can make catches where he's not even running hard. Um, it's a little like Andrew Jones. You know, guys would end up in, in similar situations, leaving their feet. Or, or simply not making a catch, whereas Andrew Jones would just be there and he'd make the make the play. And and Luis Robert has that skill set. It's something that I don't think you can really teach. I think you can get better at it, but he's just off the charts good. And you know, unfortunately, we have the uh, the Robert stealing uh, catches away from Eloy Jimenez, which was a lot of fun last year because Eloy, as you know, is injured, but. I do think that if you put just him in the outfield, he'd probably make most of the plays. <laughs> All right. So we, we know a lot of the knowns on this team. We know Robert's good. Uh, some of the things that were kind of unknown or uncertain coming into this season, one was uh, how the manager would adapt to being out of baseball for as long as he has. Uh, what are your early impressions of Tony LaRosa? Yeah, I've talked to Tony about a lot of different things. You know, he's he's embraced the new rules that didn't exist uh, when he retired, the three batter minimum, the runner at second base and extra innings, he said, I think they're all good for baseball and you adjust to the rules as they are laid out uh, at any moment in time. And I think, Mark, for me, where I go is the bullpen because he was such an innovator with specialization and he's got a unique circumstance in that he has two young, hard-throwing pitchers, one from the left side, one from the right, Garrett Crochet, who was drafted last year and made his big league debut in 2020, and Michael Kopech, who's back for the first time since 2018. And the one thing that Tony has done is because they don't want to go back-to-back days with these guys, he, he's really kind of pressing the, the advantage when they pitch. He's finding these pockets, and they'll get seven outs. And I think that in a weird way, we're kind of getting back to the Bruce Suter, Goose Gossage era, maybe before Tony went, you know, one batter here, one batter there, the platoon matchup. But because of the three batter minimum now, I think that there is an advantage to having guys who've been starters in their careers give you more than two innings and understand like, hey, this is your day. If you pitch on Monday, you're probably not going to be used again until Thursday. And so he's got kind of a couple of groups of guys. He's got the Cody Hoyers and Aaron Bummers who are kind of the late inning guys. And then Evan Marshall and, and Crochet and Kopech are kind of the six, seven, eight guys. Uh, so that part of it's been fun. He's only used Hendricks as his ninth inning save guy. I think that could change as time goes on, but I think right now, early, he's just trying to establish general roles and not uh, get too crazy, so to speak. The Kopech and Crochet thing is particularly interesting because of the way in which he's essentially adapting from 10 years ago to now. And it kind of reminds me of Pat Riley uh, when he was with the Showtime Lakers and then adapting to the Knicks and the Heat. And I, I think it was kind of silly to think that Tony LaRusso, he's who's a smart guy, wouldn't necessarily adapt in some way. So it's interesting to hear how he's doing that. All right. You mentioned Kopech. I want to talk about two guys, two youngish or younger or newer guys uh, on the uh, offensive side, Andrew Vaughn and Yerman Mercedes, your early impressions of them. Well, Vaughn, it's been kind of a, a, a weird start. You know, he was going to be the opening day designated hitter until Aloy got hurt. 
uh, immediately uh, grabbed an outfield glove and you know learned as much as he could out there. He hasn't played a ton out there, but he's looked okay. You know, I think for for left fielders generally, you just you want them to out hit their mistakes. That's what I said when when Kyle Schwarber was with the Cubs for those years. Although I thought Kyle was much better than than a lot of people thought. His mistakes kind of stood out because they just didn't look uh, very graceful. But but I think Vaughn has a chance to be just decent out there. But he hasn't hit yet. I think you know a young player who just turned twenty three hasn't had a lot of minor league plate appearances. So you're going to expect uh, some moments where it just doesn't look quite right, but he can hit. And I don't think they're overly concerned about it. I think the big question for Vaughn right now is the, will the lack of plate appearances and games force them at some point to, to send him to what will probably be AAA as opposed to the alternate site, which is kind of going away here shortly, uh, just to make sure he gets his reps. Uh, I think that at some point they're going to have to kind of make a bigger decision. But having said that, this is a team that's trying to win the World Series this year. And, and you know, I said it from day one of spring training, uh, development is secondary to winning a World Series. And if Andrew Vaughn helps you win one or two games this year, um, but maybe doesn't develop at the rate they had hoped, that that's a win, right? Because you're, you're, you're doing everything you can to scratch and claw out as many victories as possible. Mercedes is a young player in terms of big league time. But he's 28 and he's been around a while and at every level and he's played in independent ball and with several different organizations and in winter league baseball for years. All he does is hit 300 and he's got a good two strike approach. He's he's really a bat only guy. He's ostensibly the third catcher, but he hasn't played defense yet this year. And because of all the musical chairs with the Aloy injury, he's gotten an opportunity and it's so cool to see a guy who's uh, been fighting to get a chance, go five for five, then go three for his next three, you know, eight for eight to start his career. Uh, right now he's batting about 500. The fans have loved it. He's enjoying every second of it. And Mark, I don't know if it's sustainable, but what what makes me think it could be is the fact that he's not striking out a ton and he's accepting his walks. He's not a chase guy. So you know, that should bode well for him. Teams are going to adjust to him, but I really like the fact that he makes adjustments when he has two strikes. He's not a chase guy. I, I think that's an important piece. And that's the kind of thing that you can also get through to someone on the radio in a couple of seconds. It's, it's an e- it's an easier kind of thing to say. And actually, I want to touch on that because I've listened to you guys, uh, you and Darren Jackson now twice in the last few days. One thing I noticed with Darren Jackson is that he can analyze a swing in less than 10 seconds, sometimes five seconds. He can point out tells in guys' stances, and he knows how to do it on radio quickly to essentially get out of the way and let the action happen and you'd be able to call the action. I'm curious about your experience working with him and what he brings to a broadcast because he's been doing this for a while. Yeah, he has. He's really good at that. He gets in, he gets out. As you know, as you just said, it's hugely important uh, in a radio call. He knows the team and the organization. He knows the league. Uh, I've relied very heavily on him uh, in terms of analyzing pitchers and, and players that I haven't seen a lot because I've been over in the National League. You know, Tony Gwynn was a teammate of his, right? So Walt Riniak was one of his hitting coaches. He, he's been around some of the the stalwarts of the game in terms of offensive approach. And, and you know, he was a guy who could steal bases. 
He was a guy who was a terrific defensive center fielder. And he was a guy who, you know, hit 300 once in his career and and could hit the ball out of the ballpark. So he had kind of a dynamic skill set. He told me this interesting story. He said, I could not hit the high fastball. He said, but I went out of my way sometimes to raise my hands and try to do damage with high fastballs because it got on the scouting report, don't throw him high fastballs. He said, <laughs> which is interesting because that's the one pitch he didn't really like to hit. So that that was a great story. And uh, yeah, we, we, we've had a lot of fun. We've had a lot of laughs and uh, that'll continue as time goes on. Two more quick ones for Len Casper. It's obligatory here that since defense is kind of our thing, that we always bring it up with our guests. And I'll bring it up from the White Sox from this perspective. Last year, by defensive runs saved in the 60-game season, one of the best defensive teams in baseball. That was partly due to Tim Anderson and Jose Abreu, two guys whose defensive numbers have been, I guess, shall we say, up and down, had up years for them. How should we interpret what their defense and what the White Sox defense is going to be this season? Great question. I have no idea. <laughs> look, I, I call the 2016 Cubs season, it will go down, I believe, I think analytically and anecdotally <laughs> as one of the best defensive clubs and seasons in the history of the game. I think their defensive efficiency was, was, was off the charts. I think the goal here is to be average or above average uh, as a group, right? Um, yep. And not make it harder on guys like Dallas Keuchel, who really needs infield defense. But I haven't seen them play enough. Obreu is good. I, I, I you know, I'd heard that he wasn't a, a particularly strong first baseman. Made two really nice plays last night, and I think he's gotten better. My baseline for defense at this level, Mark, is you got to make all the routine plays. You just have to, and when you don't. Uh, you really put that pitcher behind the eight ball. If you have a couple guys like Robert and Anderson, and I would put Moncada in this category, who can occasionally make the spectacular play, uh, that's gravy and that's awesome. But you just can't boot the routine ball, and that's something that has bitten the White Sox early in the season. And hopefully that will go away. I, th I do think defenses slump. And it can get in a guy's head. Sometimes his offense takes, uh, he takes it out on defense. But if this team is going to get to the promised land, they're going to have to be a lot better defensively than they've been here in the first couple of weeks. All right. So one, one more for you here. From listening to the broadcast the other day, you brought up 3-2-1 Contact, uh, <laughs> which is a show that I liked as a kid, uh, even if your partner didn't know what it was. <laughs> what it was. My interest was in the Bloodhound Gang and solving mysteries. Yeah. So I'm curious, was there anything from a young age for you that would have lent itself to sabermetric thinking? And how would you, what are some things that you might recommend to get a kid into being able to analyze baseball smartly? Wow. That's, that's a great question. I, I just think the word curiosity is what I come back to. And my goal really from a young age was to try to learn as much as I could. And sports gave me that avenue. I, I wanted to learn, you know, what icing meant in hockey. I heard that icing, what is this? And so, you know, if you do it at a young age and you get into a sport, I think you internalize some of the intricacies and it's a much easier thing when you're an adult to follow. 
see soccer I like, but it's harder for me to follow. Yep. Even though I understand, I guess, the rules and kind of the strategy, I don't understand it at a deep level. And I didn't when I was seven or eight. And if I had, I think I would be a better soccer fan, so to speak. Well, hockey was the sport that I definitely understood early on. Baseball, very similarly. And once it's in your DNA, you just have this curiosity to learn as much as you possibly can. So, you know, I would just encourage uh, young people, especially now with the internet, the thing that we didn't have when we were kids to be able to to look up information is just explore as much as you can. Take yourself down these rabbit holes where you find a player you like and you want to find out more about him and you, you see some numbers that you don't quite understand, but they apparently tell you that he was really good or is really good. Kind of find out why, you know, you don't have to come up with the definition of wins above replacement beyond the kind of simple version of it. I couldn't calculate that, but I know what it means, right? And so I just think my goal every day, and I'm 50 now, is when I get to the ballpark, I try to see something I've never seen before, learn something that I didn't know before, ask really smart people questions that maybe they haven't pondered before. And I think the questions become way more important than the answers. And that's kind of how I live my life. That's awesome. And to take us out uh, on yesterday's broadcast, yesterday when we were taping this, what would Howard Cosell think of analytics since you, as we learned, do a Howard Cosell? Well, analytics, the very auspicious version of the baseball statistical realm has really taken the league by storm. This reporter doesn't understand any of it. And quite honestly, I do not want to bore my audience with such nonsense. Now back to the action. <laughs> I feel bad that we're ending it with the disparaging, but that, I do feel like that's an accurate representation of what Howard Cosell would have said. Yeah, I do think he would have had disdain for it, but it would have been charming. Yep. All right. Uh, thanks, Led. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. Keep up the great work. Want to get an edge in fantasy baseball this season? Then check out the Bill James Handbook, Projections Update. This Excel spreadsheet offers player projections for 2021. The spreadsheet allows you to manipulate the data in a dynamic way, tailored to suit your own interests. The projections are based on our exclusive formula and our playing time assessments. We also adjust projections for many reasons, including free agent signings, trades, injuries, and ballpark changes. Check out the link to purchase them in the show notes. Best of luck this season from the folks at Sports Info Solutions. And we welcome in ESPN content producer Paul Hembakitis. You see him on Get Up, mornings on ESPN. You hear him regularly as Hembo on ESPN Radio. Hembo is the first guest in the history of the show who asked to be a guest. Hi, Paul. Thanks for doing that. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing good, man. I didn't realize I was making such extraordinary history today. I also recall the first time that you and I talked, I think it was probably five or six years ago, when I just got hired at ESPN. I, was, I, I knew who you were. I followed you on Twitter. I was so excited. You took me to the, uh, to the half-calf at that point. You got like your standard chicken salad sandwich, which you seem to eat every single night. We sat down with Jason Stark. It all seems like 100 years ago. Hemba's very much the ultimate baseball fan. So let's start by asking you for your favorite moment of the first two weeks. And to stay true to what we do here, give it some sort of analytical spin. So this might surprise you because you know that I'm a Phillies fan. But I think in watching a bunch of baseball the first couple of weeks of the season, the, the thing that most stands out to me so far 
was that on consecutive days I watched against my Phillies, Ronald Acuna Jr. hit a 460-foot home run to dead center field and pimped it. And then the very next day, beat out a routine ground ball that he hit to Didi Gregorius at shortstop. Didi fired the ball over like 88 miles an hour. Acuna got home to first in less than 4.1 seconds. And I'm telling you, man, those guys don't grow on trees. I think he is like, – I don't think he's the best player in the game. I think there's a chance he could win the MVP if he puts it together this year. But I don't know that there's a more, more toolsy player in the sport. Like I think when you look at these kinds of all-time great power speed guys historically, he's got the tools to be one of them. Obviously, there's a lot of strikeout in his game. But most players in baseball can't hit a 460-foot bomb, nor can they get home to first in 4.1 seconds from the right side. He did both of them on consecutive days. It was wild. I love it. That, that's a good call. My favorite moment of the season so far was Musgrove's no-hitter. I think two things from the Padres that kind of stick out. One is the Musgrove no-hitter, and the other is that Blake Snell got pulled in the fifth inning with a shutout going in his first start with the Padres, <laughs> which I thought was an interesting moment of kind of twist yeah, going back no to, to last fall. And in fact, in looking up within the first two games of a season, the number of times that a pitcher got pulled specifically in the fifth inning with no runs allowed, it was like one other guy. It was like a Doyle Alexander or something like that. It's not something that typically happens in your first start of the season when you've got a shutout going in the fifth inning at 80-whatever pitches. But I think it shows you uh, where the game is changing these days. Joe Musgrove, of course, I think you just look at the dramatic improvements uh, that could have been foreshadowed a couple of years ago by his fielding independent numbers being as good as they were. Uh, Musgrove this year, no hitter and allowed three hits in his other start pitches the day that we're taping this. So uh, by the time people hear this, he might have either done even better or maybe done uh, something a little that brings him back to the norm. All right. So you know that we, we both kind of like to look through stat lines for quirks. Do you have a favorite quirk in a player's stat line from the first two weeks? Yes, I'll stick with the I'll stick with the Atlanta Braves. I've just had the chance to see them play a bunch so far, just because of the team I root for, which is not the Braves but the Phillies. I didn't realize until today that Freddie Freeman owns a batting average on balls in play, a BABIP of 103, 33 balls in play. <laughs> His BABIP is 103. And what's so funny about that to me is not that it is like, it is just so low; it's that it's Freddie Freeman, and it's that you know, and it's so low. Freddie Freeman, as you well know, perhaps better than almost anybody, is always at the very top of the leaderboards on like line drive percent and hard hit rate and 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 batting average on balls in play because he just scalds the ball all over the place. So even though it's only a week and a half, for him to be dead last in the league in that was just such a peculiar thing. Obviously, he's going to take off. I most recognized it as being a thing because he's on my fantasy team and couldn't buy a hit. But <laughs> Freddie Freeman, a 103 bat. What do you think, Mark? Is that sustainable over the course of 162? Uh, I think he's going <laughs> to wind up in the 300-somethings. But I think that in the eyes of some, he's batting a thousand because of what he did for the with the kid who from Philadelphia who gave the fan wearing the Freeman jersey the baseball for the home run that Freddie hit. And then Freddie went and gave the fan a baseball, uh, the fan who gave the ball away, gave the guy a signed baseball of both Freddie and Bryce Harper. And I, I, I think Freddie Freeman is somewhat of a unique person in baseball. I know that Buster only just did a E60 on him that aired the other day. He hmm. is uh, very highly regarded by teammates, fans, everybody. Uh, I'm looking forward to eventually voting on him for the Hall of Fame. I think that he is moving very much in that direction, and I think it's very cool. And I think that trumps mine, which was just that Reese Hoskins, who led the National League in walks two years ago, uh, drew his first walk of the season, <laughs> and it took like two weeks for him to do it. He drew it against the Mets 
on Tuesday night. And uh, we can sabermetric it by saying its walk rate's extremely low compared to what it's been in the past. But I thought that mm-hmm. was a, a funny quirk. All right. So here's a quirk, one that I'm trying to figure out what the heck it means. What do you make of the vast differential in the numbers versus right-handed pitching, which are awful, and the numbers versus left-handed pitching, which look a little bit more normal? And just to explain what the gap is, there's a 28-point difference in batting average versus righties versus lefties, 227, 255. The gap in on base is 23 points. The gap in slugging is 45 points. Normally, those are a little bit more bunched together. Uh, but so far this year, not the case. Do you attribute that strictly to just Jacob deGrom uh, or is it something else? <laughs> I'll leave it to you to, to, to slide that in. I think I'd be a lot more comfortable answering, the, answering that question, I don't know, a month from now, because yep. in all likelihood, the, num- the numbers will normalize. My theory, or at least my like pie in the sky on this is, we know that people say the baseball is a tad bit different, right? Like Buster has described it as a mush ball. Others have said the seams are enlarged. Like there's definitely... There's definitely something rotten in Denmark, and whether or not it's just anecdotal or whether there's actually something to it, I think we'll obviously learn that throughout the course of the season. My only theory as to what this could be, should it remain, is that somehow, some way, the baseball, the composition of the baseball somehow favors one side more than the other. Now, I don't know if it's because of the way that the ball would spin, the way that the ball, like, I, I don't really have a, a, a good answer to the question because I obviously not had the chance to study it because we also... Like, even if we're to assume that the baseball is different, it would require a pretty decent amount of research to jump to this conclusion anyway. But that's really the only thing that, that sort of j- jumped to mind for me, which is maybe somehow, some way that the composition of the baseball, should it be standardized across the league, somehow favors one side more, though, more so than the other. But there's no obvious reason to me how that would be the case. <laughs> I feel like that's one where we've, we've got to have one of our previous guests, Rob Arthur, or uh, mm-hmm. someone of that right. Uh, come on mm-hmm. and explain it. All right. Maybe something a little bit more explainable. Is there a player for whom you feel their first 10 games foreshadow something, either big or small? I, I got one hitter and I got one pitcher for you. So the hitter, as you're probably not surprised to hear, is Byron Buxton, who has probably been the best hitter in baseball so far this season. Now, is that likely to remain? Of course not, based upon the track record. But I was surprised to go back and learn that over the last three years, dating to 2019, He's got a 575 slugging, right? So this is this is this is a player who was once sort of a punch and Judy, who is now driving the baseball. And during that time, the Twins have won 68% of the games in which he's in the lineup, and they allow a run and a half fewer per game when he's playing center field. Like obviously that's not all attributable to his center field defense, but it's at least noteworthy considering there's a pretty even slice of games in which he plays versus does not, because he's been so fragile. In fact, over the over that period of time, if memory serves. I think he ranks 32nd among position players and wins above replacement, despite ranking 260th in games played. So like when he plays over that stretch of time, he's been outstanding and has been a massive contributor to their team. Like he's been the best player in their lineup when he's played, when you consider offense, defense, and base running. So if we look, if we get 150 games of peak Byron Buxton, who's to say that he can't generate seven or eight war? I mean, he's been a top 10 player in baseball over the last three seasons on a per game basis using that metric. So look, I don't know if, I don't know if there's any chance he can sustain this, nor is there a chance that he can stay healthy just given the track record. But if there's a position player for whom I would say the first week and a half has been most noteworthy or the loudest, it would be him. What say you? I feel that I I get so concerned with him about the crashing into fence factor. And he seems a lot smarter about that now than he was. And so we had him on 
before the season started, and he talked about adjusting his swing to look more like Aaron Judge. And for people that mm-hmm. want to listen to that, uh, I encourage you to go back to our old episodes. And that he was going for more oppo power, that he was looking to hit the ball deep. So I'd like to believe it. I put down, I wrote down 27, I think it was a day or two ago, when I, I asked aloud on Twitter, how many home runs is he going to hit this year? I feel like okay. 27 is a fair, a fair play for him. I'll give, you, I'll give you my pitcher, too, and, and, and let, let, just bounce this off you before I give, uh, hand you back the reins. The pitcher, and this is a little bit less numerically based, although his spin rate is on pace to be the highest rate of his career, and that's Frankie Montas. So I watched most of his start over the weekend against Houston, and I was really impressed by how he was able to consistently spin his, his fastball above the barrel. Like That's a good fastball-hitting team, and he was able to consistently live above it. Now, I think that that's obviously such a major factor in today's game because of the baseball, because of the uppercuts, because of launch angle phenomenon and all the rest of it. But this is a pitcher who's really never put it all together. But the stuff that he demonstrated over the weekend, just, just in watching the start, consistently living over the barrel with 95 plus with his four seamer and spinning a pretty decent breaking ball beneath it. Like there's a pretty decent chance that, I mean, if he can uh, demonstrate that over the course of a full season, that he's going to be their best pitcher. Like that's the kind of stuff that he showed then. And just in one start that he put together was a lot better than I had remembered him ever doing before. And this is a guy obviously with a good track record, spotty here and there in terms of the stuff and whatnot. But I was really impressed by what he saw. And that's a team that would desperately, that desperately needs him to pitch well, given their position in the standings, at least to start the season. Okay. So I'm going to go across the bay for the hitters. I'm going to say, I'm going to say Evan Longoria is an interesting one. Now, hmm. admittedly, he's 35, so you'd figure decline, right? But mm-hmm. three three opposite field home runs in the early part of the season when he had never shown a propensity to drive the ball the opposite way at any point during his Giants tenure to really hit it with, with pop that way, whereas that was a trademark of him circa like 2012, 2013. Maybe he's not going to be a great player this year, but I, I feel like opposite field home runs, I've always been taught that opposite field home runs meant something when you yeah. looked at a hitter. And I feel maybe if he stays healthy, that he can perform at a decent level. I don't know that I want to put a lot of stock in a 35-year-old, and I'm actually going to pick a couple here. So for pitcher, the thing that I've been impressed with, I could stick with the Giants here but uh, on a relief pitcher, but I'm going to go to the Padres and Mark Melanson's start to the season. Five appearances, six innings, five strikeouts, one hit, nothing, basically. And I thought it, that when they signed him, that they got a bargain for what they were looking for. You figure maybe he's going to be the seventh or eighth inning guy. He's not. The guy was closing to go to the, the World Series last year. He was mm-hmm. he would have pitched he would have pitched the ninth inning to get the Braves to the World Series last year. So I am going to say that another 35-year-old or 36-year-old in this case, Mark Melanson's early season performance bodes well for the San Diego Padres and a bullpen that looks pretty good so far this year. I like that. And and so just quickly for each. Longoria, it's an interesting strategy for Longoria considering the ballpark he's playing in, right? Like you're yep. not going to get a lot of cheap home runs at the opposite field there. But what he, what, he might, what he might do is hone his swing so much so that he generates a lot more gap-to-gap power, and that might be the play. As far as Melanson is concerned, I think you're I think you're sort of on something here because I've always felt that he was among the most underrated relievers in the game. Like aside from that one blow-up year he had in Boston, which everyone for some reason decides to remember him for. He's been really, really good in run prevention. He doesn't miss a ton of bats in relation to most relievers, but he keeps it off the barrel really effectively. Yes. And like, and, like, and like you said, this is not a pitcher for whom, like, 
he's come out of nowhere. Like he was among the best pitchers on one of the best teams in all of baseball last season. And the Padres are sort of asking him, like, I don't know that he's going to throw their highest leverage innings, but he's going to, he's going to be like, if they're good, he's going to be good or, 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 or vice versa. So I'm, I think you've identified two guys I like a lot. Now, obviously they're both old. You can still have a really good season at 35, especially if you sort of figure something out. I mean, there's, there are a bunch of you know players recently have proven that. All right. So one more. Before we move to our grand finale, is mm. there a team for whom you feel their start to the season was meaningful? For example, this is kind of mean, but like I feel like we can eliminate the Texas Rangers based off their start. Are there any other teams that you feel their first 10 games of the season are meaningful? The Cubs don't look like they can hit at all. And to me, the, there's, there's no team in baseball for whom the start of the season matters more than theirs, because that's a club who I think, I think Jed just wants to sell. I think he wants to you know, I think he wants to hit the plunger, to be honest with you. And if you had told me three years ago that all these guys might be on their way out the door, all the young stars, at least so we thought at the time, I would have thought you were crazy. But I mean, Javi Baez is, is a player now over the last two years with a 93 to eight strikeout to walk ratio. I mean, you could do that. So I, I was coming into the season very pessimistic about that team. But I thought maybe if they got a good start in the first month or two, you convinced the front office, you know, is sort of convinced by the fan base to hold on and give it a go. But based upon what I've seen so far, I mean, their slash line is just absolutely dreadful. I think you're, I think you're going to see a fire sale from those guys sometime in June or July, and it's going to get really ugly. And you're going to see a three, four, five year rebuild there that the fans are going to hate, but probably still still show up for because the ballpark's so special. So we both went the cruel, the cruel route yeah. in this case. Yeah. I think a team for whom it doesn't necessarily mean too much yet is mm-hmm. someone like Washington, uh, which started okay. two and six. Two and right. six at the time of our taping. So I would put them in that category. You might put the Giants in the category on the other side. They're seven and four mm-hmm. and a lot of one-round one wins so far. So you and I both love trivia questions. And to close, why don't you give me one and I'll give you one with the twist that they have to tie back to advanced stats somehow. People okay. can play along and uh, have the, ask them to their friends too. Okay. This one I like. I mean, this one I like because... But I have to I have to credit Buster only here. He he reached out to me like a few weeks ago and said like I, I want a statistic that measures sort of the damage that a player does on a per swing basis. So what I decided to do was something very simple and just divide total bases by the number of swings and we called it crush quotient. That's what we decided we were <laughs> going to call it. Very catchy. Obviously, it's going to you know catch fire on ESPN as you would as you would expect, especially on Get Up in between our draft coverage. But anyway, crush quotient. It divides total bases divided by swings, and we just multiply that by 100 just so the numbers are somewhat recognizable and not decimals. So my question for you, Mark Simon, is over the last two seasons, 2020 and 2021, just qualify players here, who do you think leads baseball in our fake statistic? So I was going to say Jose Abreu right off the bat. That was, that was your first inclination? That was my first inclination, but uh, he strikes out a decent amount. He doesn't strike out terrible. One soda would make sense, obviously. So, th- so total bases. First swing. So think about players that that generate a lot of extra base hits, but also don't swing and miss much. So it definitely it satisfies both. It's really so DJ LeMay here. You said two of the top five hitters already, <laughs> so and including including the person who ranks first. So you you have you have peppered the leaderboard, and you've already gotten it right. If you want to keep guessing, guys up at the top or final, no, or who was who was the leader? DJ LeMay here, right? Soto. Juan Soto, Soto was the leader. Okay. DJ LeMay who ranked fourth. It, uh, it go. It went. It went. Soto, Will Myers, actually, Mike Trout, and then DJ Lemayhew. So Will Myers, like, he's he's a good example of a, sort of a post hype sleeper. I talked about yes. him today on the podcast uh, on Buster's podcast. I am so, all in on Will Myers. Right that's now. funny because on Twitter I do a sleeper sigh and a sleeper MVP, 
and my sleeper MVP. I cheated slightly because normally it's a guy that doesn't get any MVP that hasn't previously had MVP votes. Will Myers had like a really small number of them last year. So I went with Will Myers and Kevin Gossman. So mine, I think I've asked you this before, but I'm, I will take a shot at it again. So mm. your favorite player of all time is Chase Utley. Chase Utley mm. ranks second in our defensive run save statistic with 123 for his career. This is dating to 2003. Mark Ellis ranks first with 130. So I ask you, who is the other second baseman with more than 100? There are three, so since the inception of DRF, which dates 2003, there are three yes. different second basemen that with have at least 100 defensive runs saved. Mark Correct. Ellis is one, and Chase Utley is another. Yes. So I'm guessing the third person. This person, I assume, is third on the leaderboard. The third person retired in 2012. So that eliminates... So the first inclination I had was to say Ian Kinsler, but he retired more recently than 2012. Correct. Ian Kinsler is fifth. Okay. That's another terrible guess. At least I didn't guess Brandon Phillips. Who, who is this going to be? Defensive run saved second baseman since 2003. He played for the, I'll read, read them in reverse order here, I think, uh, or the something close to reverse order. The White Sox, the Dodgers, the Twins, the Padres, the Diamondbacks, and the Blue Jays. Is it Orlando Hudson? It is Orlando Hudson. You are correct. Very okay, well done. Well, we, we both got it, it on it, the second guess. It will help that you gave me the whole smorgasbord of teams <laughs> for him. But he was a great defender. Nice, nice little player. Yep. All right. Hembo, thank you for taking the time to join us. Thanks to Paul Hembakitis and to Len Casper for joining us today. And thanks to Justin Stein for editing and handling the production of the podcast. I'm Mark Simon. Thank you for listening. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS.